Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Great. Welcome back, everyone. Yes. I feel like it's been a lot longer than it has, but I suppose that's only due to the fact that we recorded this last Thursday. Thursday. And then we had that. Uh, and then we had the conference, which you know was a whole weekend. And now today's Saturday that we're finally recording this uh, this next episode. So I don't know. It just feels like it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, and there's been a lot of stuff in the meantime. And I think time feels longer when there's more experiences in that window of time. Yeah, that makes sense. And there has been a lot to uh, a lot has happened this week, to put it lightly. Right. So uh, let's just start with uh, some of the easier things. Uh, the new era in their March issue coming out, has a stance on racism. Um, I really could read the whole thing now. I'm not going to do that. But uh, the church seems to have taken a stance on racism. They put it in the new era. And it can basically be summed up as follows. Racism is bad. Um, I don't know, man. Just my initial reaction was it's not enough. And I don't mm-hmm. know... If that's just me being my normal cynical self, but I'm just like, okay, what does racism look like? How might we be prone to manifest it? How do we combat it in and out of the church? Like, I feel like we need to do much more than say that it's bad because it's because that's just not enough. Not too long ago when I talked to my quorum about this, about racism, there was, you know, one particular gentleman who kept, you know, interrupting the class because he didn't feel comfortable with the idea of labeling any of the past leaders as racists. He could only understand racism as a hostility toward a particular group of people um, because of their race. But like, I I think we just had a little bit more education about what racism is, what it can look like, how it's manifest. Then perhaps, you know, I can be more happy with the church taking a stance on racism. I don't think, and I've said, and I said this in my talk this time last year, that I don't think there's anybody in the congregation that would disagree that racism is a bad thing. Like, no one would ever disagree with that. Right. But a lot of us just, okay, (laughs) I'll I'll concede that. But here's the thing. Most people in the congregation anywhere will agree that racism is bad. But not a lot of them will agree on what it is or what it looks like or how it manifests itself. You know what I'm saying? Right. And that is the conversation I wish we had a lot more often, you know. We, we talk a lot about pornography in the church. There seems to be a talk for that every conference. You go and you search for racism in the Gospel Library app, you're only going to find three talks on the subject. And even then, these are sentences at a time. The most is like two paragraphs from Gordon B. Hinckley's talk over a decade ago. So I just think there needs to be more. For us to say that we're taking a stance against racism, I, I would really like there to be more than simply a two or three paragraph New Era article that basically amounts to racism is bad because all are alike unto God. I I want to see what that looks like. And I want members of the church to really understand the forms that racism takes and how we can combat it. Cause a lot of people don't know those things. Yeah. I think that the challenge is if people are partially arrived and they think, Oh, I'm colorblind and I just want to treat all races equally. And Uh they think they define racism as, you know, just treating different races differently. I'm like, that's actually backwards from what my understanding of racism Mm-hmm. Because I do treat different races differently. Like if a black person says this is my experience, and a white person says this is the experience of black people, I'm gonna believe the black person. Right, as like you should. I'm, I'm treating them differently, even though they're. Or like if a white person says the n word versus a black person says the n word, it's different because right. of the impact, because of the effect, because of the power dynamic. 
I do treat people differently. And maybe maybe now people are going to say Derek's racist, but I don't care what you call me. <laughs> I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not afraid. Uh, I should never be wor- more worried about what I look like than how black people are treated. Right, right. And I think that's missing in the new era statement is a clear definition of racism that gets both the structural and the interpersonal components in place. Yes, um, sir. The other thing about the racism that was really sort of the elephant in the room is it didn't address our history of racism and Correct. our present of racism either. Correct. It made it sound like it came out of nowhere, like, oh, look, we've, we're against racism. Like, why is that coming out now? Why are we just now saying that now? But I think the New Era statement should have said something like, racism is bad, and this is something we've struggled with as a church, and this is what we've right. done to overcome, and this is what we more we need to do. Mm-hmm. That would have been more powerful and more persuasive and had a more impact on the people in the pews that need this message. What do you think? That would have made it, in my opinion, that would have made it feel like that this is a more significant issue than they let on. Because, you know, this felt like just another entry on some other things that, you know, haven't necessarily been codified, but we've had an understanding of being, you know, less than good or less than godly, like energy drinks or gambling or something like that. It felt like it was something as minute or something as minor as those and racism is not as minor as those like racism as you said it's a very like it's it's built into the church's mm-hmm. uh history and it's something we haven't fully reckoned with and it's something we're clearly still dealing with like those issues that we had two weeks ago at BYU like we have we we have yet to fully address and reckon with what that whole thing has meant and what it means to people today so like I, I don't know. I yeah, just, it felt like people doing their home teaching as a checkoff. Like, oh, I did my home. Te- I just went and dumped something off, and so I can check it off. I think that's what it felt like. Is yes, we now we can check off the box that we said something against racism. But I don't. I think that's really what it what it felt like. It's shallow. It's just it, it was a mad shallow handling of a very delicate and nuanced topic that deserves more attention. Yes, uh, there needs to be a, a deeper, uh, more effective treatment that leads to changed lives. I don't. Think that's the big one that people I don't think people who are uh, complicit in the sin of racism would look at that and recognize what they're doing correct correct all right so um, that's all I got to say for the new era thing let's go on to the uh, next uh, big stories which which are uh, let's start with the honor code change yeah the honor code change at uh, BYU so basically what happened with the honor code was the more prescriptive language talking about homosexual relationships or homosexual behavior. Sorry to use those words. Those were the words that used to be in uh, the actual honor code. But those words were taken out of the honor code, leading to what, like leaving open for us to interpret the honor code now to mean that gay relationships are now allowed at BYU. That has basically been what the removal of these words has suggested. So, yeah. Initial thoughts and impressions. My, my initial thought is, goes back to last April when we had the um, Oaks, when we had the reversal of the, the November 2015 policy announced last April. Uh-huh. Oaks clearly said, from now on, we're going to treat heterosexual immorality and same sex immorality the same, which there's problems with that. But if you take that seriously and see how that works out, then. Even within the way the law of chastity is written now, an unmarried gay couple can do anything and everything an unmarried straight couple can do. 
Mm-hmm. Straight couples are allowed to kiss, to hold hands, to hold themselves out to the world as a couple. None of that is seen to violate the law of chastity. And if you're going to center everything on the law of chastity, then gay couples um, should be able to do all that too. Obviously, we're not at the point where there's marriage equality yet. or right. uh, So that's the line at BYU and in the in the church. But other than that... There's now a big door open for uh, gay relationships at BYU and elsewhere yeah. in the church. And yeah. I think this BYU honor code thing has shifted BYU because that was just so artificial anyway to say you Absolutely. can't hold hands, you can't kiss. There was never, ever a law against that mm-hmm. in the church or in the Bible or anywhere. Right. And trying to enforce, it's like the beard thing. Right. Where yeah. did that come from? That's kind of artificial. Scared of commies in the 70s. That's where that came from. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, but but now it brings the honor code in alignment to at least where we say we are as a church. Yeah. And I think I think that's an actual step forward. Now, some people say, well, that's not enough. And, and you're there. Right. Right. Um, but I think the effects of this. Are an important, and I don't. You, I know you don't like baby steps, but I don't like baby steps. But I will not dismiss that this is still a watershed moment. But for I think this is BYU. significant because what it will do is upcoming generations of people educated at BYU will now be more comfortable with gay people. Yeah, uh, which I think is an educative uh, asset to BYU. It's an educational Certainly. institute who's trying to. Prepare people for jobs in the real world. And all these BYU graduates, they're going to go out and have jobs where their bosses or coworkers are going to be LGBT. Oh, absolutely. And they need to be ready for that. And you know we've Otherwise had members they're of the fired. church. We've had, we've had that happen. Like, that's happened at least once that we know of. So, like, this is going to be good for us. So, I think that that will change the next generation of leaders in the church. And they're going to grow up seeing that, that, that love is love. And uh-huh. that uh, this is as normal and natural as, and as what they have. I think that's the, the big barrier is to the double standard is one of empathy is they don't, they, they think of being gay as just like some kink in the bedroom or something that, yeah, but it's not, it's, it's the same as straight love. Yeah. It's, I don't even consider it a different category. Mm-hmm. It's not a different category. So people say you need a special revelation to, to do this. I'm like, or you need a, I'm like, no, if Why? there's room, Where? <laughs> Love is love, and and it's not a different category. And see, that's why why I don't actually think that I'm trying to change the doctrine. I'm just trying to clarify it uh-huh. because to say that you need some special doctrinal change means that you think that gay relationships are some essentially different kind of relationship, and they're not. Right. It would be on the analogy of interracial relationships. Say that's just a different kind of relationship, and it's a completely different category, and, it, and it's really not. It's not. So that's kind of where I am with the BYU honor code. I think it is a step forward, um, and it can have a spiral effect in the churches as another generation gets used to this. Then, then they'll realize, oh look, we were wrong about all those awful things that we were saying about gay people. Yeah. Um. And it will lead. I also think this will lead. The BYU Honor Code will trickle out into bishops around the world, sort of reinterpreting the law of chastity to allow for. A lot of bishops won't allow gay kissing and hand, holding hands and stuff because they just think it's wrong. But it, this will wake them up to the idea that look, it's not against the law of chastity, and every bishop on this planet should should allow gay couples to do everything they want. 
Oh, well, with the exception of, of gay marriage and gay sex. That, they bishops aren't really in a place to do that. I mean... Um, but gay marriage is no longer... A, okay, we're going to get to that, I suppose. Yeah. The, okay. But I mean... Yeah, I think I think a good bishop can can still use some discretion in what they what they go after. That's true. Yeah. But there's no way a bishop can can say the policy of the church is that gay sex is okay. I don't I don't really see a bishop being able to say that right now. But they can say everything else is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's a that's a plus. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I have nothing to add, so let's move on to uh, the big story of the week, which was, I believe on Wednesday this happened, or Tuesday morning, there was an update to uh, the church handbook, and there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of new things, but not necessarily new, just more like things that have been enforced for a while, but are just now codified in the new updated church manual. The uh, thing that got the most noise, though, was the uh, policies affecting transgender individuals. I don't know where to begin with this, Derek. I mean, obviously, you're closer to this than I am, and I just feel like it would be best to defer to you first to have some feelings on this and just let me know what stood out to you with regard to uh, these new policies or anything else you wanted to discuss before we talk about the actual policies affecting transgender individuals. In a, in a, so first of all, this handbook now is the same handbook for everyone. There's no longer a secret handbook only for bishops and then one available to the public. Now everything's in one handbook and everything's accessible and accountable to the public, which I think is a good step. Yeah. Two, um, both uh, there's a new website for called Same Sex Attraction. The old Mormon and gay website has been renamed. I think they had more of a problem with the word Mormon than with the word gay. Okay. So the Mormon and gay website has now been folded into same-sex attraction, and now there's a new transgender website. And when you look at the handbook and the website, they're there's they're trying there's they're trying at least on one level um, to name that that we should be kind and loving. And yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. But just- what I'm saying is that can be useful for some people locally. Right to to hold people accountable to those values, um, it could also be used to cover up something that's not love, kind and loving, and we'll get to that. Sounds good. The other thing is the the, the terminology they're using the word transgender, which in the United States is the word that people are use in the trans community are using and have right. sort of coalesced. They the old handbook said gender dysphoria or something it like that. Said transse- They they said elective transsexual operations. Okay. Which um, there's there's problematic language there, mm-hmm. but they're at least using language uh, that's somewhat approaching the language the community is using, and I think that needs to be named. But going along with that, under the old policy, tr- elective transsexual operations were grounds for excommunication. Mm. I don't know if that was mandatory or optional exactly how it was phrased, but that was really the the direction. Now that's not the case. However, the scope has been broadened to include social, medical, which I think they mean including hormones, and surgical transition. Mm -hmm. All of those now are not subject to excommunication, but they're subject to restrictions restrictions around exercising or ordination to priesthood, certain callings. I don't know if it's all callings or which Probably ones. Probably the gendered ones. 
and um, Temple Recommend. Those are the restrictions that would be in place for people who transition socially, medically, or surgically. Okay. And um, which now I have a problem with this on some level because it's inconsistent. There is no other, there is no other provision in the handbook to deny life-saving medical treatment by competent medical authorities to an individual, even abortion, even abortion, right? No matter how you feel about abortion, at least the handbook says to save the li- as a life-saving medical treatment, abortion may be an option. Mm-hmm. Like if we can make this exception for abortion, for many trans people, they testify that that transition is a life-saving, a function-saving, it just it's it's a complete uh, saving of the person, and why shouldn't this is the like what what if what if the handbook said you can't get a colonoscopy you can't get a you know a heart transplant you can't get a whatever because it's violates our understanding of something or other like if it's a life saving medical treatment you can act you know let's go back to 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 how this is interpreted in the Torah. Uh, rabbinical Judaism has said that you can break any of these commandments to save a life. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're, uh, you know, need to drive in the car on Shabbat to get to the hospital, you not only you may you, but you have to. You are right. obligated to save a life. Right. And there are the only exceptions to this are you cannot violate um, idolatry, murder, or sexual immorality in order to save a life. But every other, you can eat non-kosher food. You can drive a car you can do anything on shabbat to save a life um and i'm like that is how valuable life is like all these people claiming to be pro-life uh why why should a life-saving medical treatment that is universally by all of our mental health and medical and professional organizations all of them support uh transition related care for transgender individuals i'm like that is the medical and ethical standard of the professional community that's an expert on these things. Why is that now the only medical procedure in the entire handbook that that can't be done to save a life? Mm. I don't know. So um, uh, let's talk about, for example, breast augmentation. That's permitted, right? Mm-hmm. And that for for cisgender individuals who want their body to conform their body surgically to what they think it should be, we allow that, right? So there's just a lot of things that let's go back and and re- remind ourselves that this this handbook is provisional and it's tentative. The leaders there was this video that came out with it. I don't I don't know if you saw this. I video. did not see there was a video. There's a video that explained it and said. Well, we were going to try to get to some of these changes in like two or three years, but we wanted to get these out here so that we can get feedback on them and that we can, you know, if there's misunderstandings, we can clarify them. Uh This isn't the final anything. Mm. We just want to get these out there because we think it's important to to at least get something out there so that people can uh, live into them and see how it works. And we want feedback. We want if there's miscommunications, we'll, we'll have the chance to fix it. That's why this handbook is now online so that we can update it. 
So I think there is at least some sense of humility among, at least I'm hoping there's some sense of humility among the people who put out this handbook to say, look, we don't have this all right. We're, we're working on it and we want feedback. And so, mm. well, this is my feedback to you is <laughs> to consult with the transgender community, listen and be accountable to them. And then, and then, and then you'll you'll have you'll be able to to ask the right questions to get revelation, um, to do your homework, to study it out in your mind first, and then go to go to the Lord with this, and then get some revelation. Mm. Now I want to hear what you say, but I'll I'll come back to this. No, that's great. That's great. Um, thank you for sharing that first off, because uh, especially that last part, I was not aware that that was the tack that the church was taking with regard to these new updates, because. Let me just tell you, as I read the thing, as I read the new policies, particularly those affecting members of the LGBTQ community, especially the T part of that equation, I was like, I could feel the church's grip slipping. Like I could feel their power slipping. Like none of this, a lot of this just didn't make any sense to me. A lot of mm -hmm. this just felt overcomplicated and contradictory. Like the leader, like for example, just in that first paragraph, the leaders were counseling against sexual reassignment surgery or other medical interventions or simply presenting as a gender other than the one you were assigned at birth. But what happened to that whole thing in the first paragraph about showing people sensitivity, compassion, and abundance of Christ-like love? I was right. like, that's not how you do that, guys. That's not how you do that at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. Like, and just from what I could see on Mormon social media, not a lot of people were rocking with this. Like the people that had anything to say about these new policies, yeah, they could see some of them were a step in the right direction. But as far as the trans community goes, the general temp, the general tone of the response to it was just no, no, not at all. Like this yeah. doesn't make any sense. So just from from what I can say, from what I can see, it overcomplicates what shouldn't be an issue in the first place. The Lord that looketh on the heart, the Lord in whose image we are all made, the outward appearance is probably not he's probably not at all interested in what falls between anyone's legs so so long as they believe in and follow him i i see nothing in my scriptures no no references mm. in those margins mm. in the handbook um or anything in academia that suggests that you know gender that that suggests that identifying as a gender that may not complement your biology is in any, in any way uh problematic or sinful at all so like i i just need the church to make it make sense it's it's good to know that they're open to receiving feedback because you know i when i see these updates i just see so many cracks so many holes so many things that are lacking we need yeah. more revelation i am anxious for more revelation because whatever is in the updated handbook right now this ain't it yeah and i think part of that is there this so my background is really tr being trained as a literary scholar is looking at a text and making inferences about the origin of that text and whatever. When I look at this text, I can very clearly see that it was written by a committee, mm -hmm. right? Um, because you've got different people with different priorities on the committee getting their thing, getting their thing in the text. Like you, someone on the committee thought it was a priority for trans people in the church to be able to put their name and possibly pronouns into the membership record system and that, that we can use their name and pronouns in the ward. I'm like that. I hate to say that's a step forward because it's a step into a mess because then <laughs> you've got this prohibition against social transitioning. And I think yeah. it's more of a mess to call someone 
who's not allowed to transition uh, in terms of their gender expression to call them by a different name and pronouns. I think that's more of a mess. Yeah. Obviously, you should still call people by their correct name and pronouns, but you're making it more of a mess if you don't allow them to to be themselves. Right. Right. And um, there's just some ambiguities in here. For example, yeah, a lot of ambiguities. They now have retroactively defined the word gender in the family what proclamation was that all about? to yeah. be biological sex at birth, which is not even a thing. How are they going to do that? Biology. Go, go talk to any biologist. Right. That's not a thing. It's not. There is no binary in in biology. There is no biological sex at birth. That that's not a category that biologists are using or medical yeah. professionals are using. Yeah. There's just so many categories of around intersex, around um, gender non-binary. Even the morphology and the chromosomes can be non-binary. There's just mm-hmm. we don't have this nice easy black and white category. Um, similar to race, we don't have a define boundaries around race either and so trying to to make something real that's not even real is gonna cause a a lot of confusion definitely and um yeah so in some ways it looks like it could be maybe two steps forward and two steps back and then with trans you step into this mess where certain things are worse and so it's it's not I, I just don't I just don't see how Jesus can look at this handbook the way it is right now and smile on it and say that has my fingerprints on it. You right. know how Jesus treated people who didn't fit into gender binaries? Let's talk about the eunuchs in Matthew chapter 19. He held now I'm not that's not the same as uh contemporary the, the contemporary trans community, but it is people who didn't fit into what what everyone else thought of as a binary of, of either a man or a woman and, and yeah. all these other things. You've yeah. got people who physically did not match uh, and and then they had their own social role and they're just, Jesus was kind toward them. He said they, they've got a place in the kingdom and some people have even made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. I'm like, wow, right. he's holding out this minority gender experience as the centerpiece of what it means to be in the kingdom, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of this handbook that takes the the trans and the intersex people. There is a separate paragraph about intersex people. Yeah, yeah, and pushes them to the margins. I'm like, that's not what Christ did. No, Christ was all about the margins. Yep, Christ sat in the margins, wept with the margins, yep. took yep. care of the margins, centered them, centered children. Sent, he like, I'm like, yeah. There's there's a. Yeah, we should have had Jesus on that committee that wrote this, this book because <laughs> yeah. because that's that's the central voice that needs to come out. Yeah, and I think that was trying to come out when they said at the beginning we need to be kind and inclusive and loving and. And I was with them until the end yeah. of that paragraph, <laughs> like. And there's nothing more kind, inclusive, or loving than actually listening to the people, being accountable to them, and supporting them where they are and right. centering them. That's what's loving. Loving right. isn't just how you feel about them. It's what the impact is. And the impact on the trans community is not going to be good. It's yeah. going to divide people away from their families. It's going to divide people away from their church. The impact of this, the fruits of this, you're going to know this by its fruits. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some trans people I've seen online. The The majority of trans people have, have seen this as a, as a very, very... Uh, complicated and and painful situation now some trans people have said well at least we can use our pronouns at least it says that trans people are welcome for baptism at least it says 
And so there is that, right? Because because mm-hmm. it now says trans people are welcome in church. But with an asterisk, with a yeah. big asterisk in it, which is not at all Christ did not put that there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what what's happening is that the the leaders of the church are wrestling with their own categories and their own biases and their own prejudices and they're trying mm-hmm. to filter what they can sense of Christ's love for trans people and cisgender LGB because there are changes around LGB. Uh, you know, the, the policy that started in November of 2015 and they announced was ending, now is completely gone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. from the handbook. Uh, Same-gender marriage is no longer apostasy. Right. Um, it's It's been downgraded to a lesser priority to go after. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's significant. Um, but but let's talk about revelation. And here's where there's a lot of people talking about the impact of these of these changes, and that's valid. But I want to talk about it as a theologian about the origin of these changes. Like why our church leaders have uh, have taken these steps. Okay. And it goes back to. A, I'm going to teach a parable about three different windows or three ways of approaching a window. Not Microsoft Windows, but actual <laughs> windows. Got it. <laughs> um, you, oh, by the way, let me just tell. Did you know that the that that the that God in the Book of Mormon doesn't want us to use Microsoft products? Yes, he told the brother of Jared, and ye shall not have windows. <laughs> Dang it. I was like, where's this going? What's Jared about to do? Um, Can't get through an episode without it, man. <laughs> just when I okay. thought, we, we're almost at the half an hour mark. I was like, oh, oh no. we might just do it. We might just do it. Okay. Nope. Well, let me just go quickly over these, the parable of the three windows. Right. And this is drawn a little bit from what Tom Wright has said. He he made the some comments with a completely different point um do our listeners need to be familiar with tom wright no okay no i just want to like name credit even though this isn't the same thing as what he said it was inspired by something he said got it so you've got sort of three approaches to a window you've got the fundamentalist you've got the skepticist or the skeptic and then the realist okay and all there are three approaches to how revelation works now fundamentalists think of it very naively they think of it of revelation as looking out a window and the window is perfectly clear and as long as it's sunny and as long as you're you're looking out the window you can see exactly the way things are and that's how our prophets and apostles work they can just look out and see clearly into the mind of god whatever's there is there there's no filter there's no processing it's a beautiful clear clean window that they can look out that's the sort of naive approach okay then the skeptic's approach is that the window is actually a mirror and all you see is a reflection of yourself, your own biases, your own prejudices. There's no actual revelation. Skeptics okay. don't think that revelation is real. They think it's all just uh, a repackaging of your own ideas in your own self and, and that's what it is. There's no window. There's no truth out there. There's just a mirror. Okay. And then the third approach is the realist approach. To say, yes, there's a window, and there is something real on the other side. Revelation is real. But that window can be a little bit warped. It can be a little bit dirty. It can be a little bit um, 
obscure in some places and you can see your reflection in the window not only can you see through the window but you can also see your reflection in the window and you have to be careful to separate those and keep them apart mm -hmm. I think that is the most realistic approach to revelation in our church if you look at every revelation in the mm -hmm. history of our scriptures it's going to be light from God mm -hmm. filtered through a human with limitations and liabilities and a particular language at a particular time and place mm -hmm. and you're going to get some of their human fingerprints even if it's just the style of the vocabulary it's yeah. all over the scriptures you're going to yeah. get that you're going to get some of that in with the revelation mm. um and that's the i think the the best the healthiest and the most resilient approach to revelation in the church so applying this to People are going to say, well, this handbook plopped down from heaven and it's inspired by God. I'm like, okay, you can say that. Mm -hmm. But that type of naive approach is the first window to think that, that this is just a clear depiction of God's reality, unmediated by humans, unmediated by any type of bias or prejudice mm -hmm. because there's no reflection in the window. I'm saying there's a reflection in the window. This handbook is a reflection of the leaders who wrote it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not claiming to be exempt. If you had me on that committee, I guarantee you, I would still have biases and prejudices. Even if you name me an apostle or a prophet or whatever, I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to have all my biases and prejudices. Right, right. And those need to be named and accounted for. Mm -hmm. So how do, do you think that this sort of framework helps us have a, a generous and almost empathetic approach to the way things are in the church, but also naming that 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 this is this is really what happens and and some people's prejudices can get get into the handbook i do think so um like i just had an experience with this just just last night uh one of the listeners of the show is she seems to be struggling with you know her children who all seem to be leaving the faith and it's really seems to be taking a toll on her one of them most recently came up to her talking about issues he had with uh, brigham young being mm. a racist and she wanted to know, how do I talk to my kid about who, who's bringing these issues to me about Brigham Young being a racist? And I'm just like, well, why is it a problem that he's a racist? Does he, does he take that to mean that because he's a racist, he can't be a prophet? And I seem to got the vibe that, yes, that is the case. And we've discussed this on the show before, but I'm just like, well, if you expect perfection, if you expect every, every prophet, every leader of the church to not have any flaws whatsoever, then you're not going to be able, you're, you're not, you're not going to be able to be in the church. You're not going to be able right. to be part of any institution that is claiming any kind of communication with God because whatever revelation is being received is being received, not in a vacuum, not in a social, political or cultural vacuum, but it is being received and being filtered through those biases that we all have. Like the closest thing I will ever get to an apostle was when I served as a missionary. And I know that my biases were not gone mm -hmm. just as sure. I know that anybody else who bears the title elder currently, their biases, their biases are still present. So I would have to say that like there, it's not like there isn't precedent for imperfect prophets like Jonah, David, uh, mm -hmm. the prophet Lehi, Nephi named his, some of his sins. A lot of these prophets have started their works by saying, or ended their works by saying, if there are be imperfections in this record, they are the faults of man. Basically, it's our fault. They are right. being filtered for us as, 
through us as imperfect vessels. I feel like everybody's interpretive framework needs to have this if they are going to be able to stand with any kind of resilience in the church because that has always been the way it's been. Right. It has always been this way for God to basically be using basically what he gets. You know, no one's perfect except for Christ. That was the only mm. perfect prophet that has ever been on this earth. And I think the sooner people realize that, the better. That doesn't mean we don't get to expect better of our prophets or our leaders. That just means we have to extend to them the same grace that we would extend to any other imperfect person. And that's yeah. the piece that needs to be present here is that I, we got to be willing to extend our leaders grace, but we also need to be able to hold them accountable. The realist framework that mm-hmm. you named allows space for both and we need both. Yes. And um, part of the challenge is people with the first window framework, the fundamentalist, the naive view of of Revelation, will come to us and say, how dare you oppose a prophet of God? Or how dare you, like, critique a God's prophet? Right. But when you actually look at at what we're doing, first of all, that's an abusive and manipulative statement. I just want to name that right there. Yes, sir. That is completely unfair and unsportsmanlike in a body of Christ that that is made up of many members with different. That's actually the solution to the fact that we we have biases is that we get people with different biases looking through the same window. And when we compare what we see, I'm going to see my reflection. You're going to see your reflection. But the stuff that we kind of have in common that's going to be what's really out there. And right. I think having different angles, that's why we have diversity. Like we've got four gospels that don't all have the same image of Jesus. They can be radically different because they're filtered through what they experienced and what they think their audience needs to hear. I just, mm-hmm. I'm glad that we have all four. Right. And this gets back to what Paul taught very beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13, that we know in part and we prophesy in part. He said right there that we see through a glass darkly. He did. That's all I'm saying. He is an apostle of the Lord, one of the chiefest apostles in the New Testament, the author of a, a large number of documents in the New Testament, Like, and, and he is so influential in the history of Christianity, probably more influential than any other uh, of the apostles. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, I don't know it all. When the perfect comes, yeah, then we're going to know it, but right now we see through a glass darkly, and we have to have charity and empathy and room for one another. That's the whole point about the love chapter in first Corinthians 13 is look, yeah. we don't know everything. We got to be patient with one another. We've got to ha- have a little bit of room to, to dance here yeah. with each other. And yeah. we're not gonna, we're not going to get it all right. And we've got to make room for that. Big time. And I just want to, um, go through real quick. Um, actually, this is what I should do is go to first Timothy five, because let me just tell you, oh, I probably already gave it, gave it away, but <laughs> does the new Testament teach that church leaders can be held accountable? <laughs> I mean, oh, you're asking, my I'm bad. asking you. Yes. yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay. Because I wouldn't have, I wouldn't which, have which, asked it. Well, which example are you going to? Cause I want to like, I want to spoil nothing either. Well, I'm going to go to this example in 1 Timothy um, chapter 5. Okay. And this is going to be verses 19 through 21. Okay. And here it says, Do not accept an accusation against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Which I think is brilliant. It says, yeah, you've got to have two or three witnesses and you've got to have this. But you can accept an accusation and against an elder. Here in this context, it's a church leader, um, mm-hmm. not just an, an old person. <laughs> uh, yes. So do not accept an accusation against 
an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Then in verse 20, reprove those who sin before all. Enopion ponton, before everyone. So the public accountability piece for, for church leaders who are sinning, who do something wrong, is there. You need to reprove them before everyone. And why? Mm-hmm. So that the rest may have fear, so that, th- that the rest may um, be warned, right? So that everyone else has this warning out there. Uh, verse 21. I solemnly charge you before God and Je- in Christ Jesus and the elect angles, angels that you carry out these things that is this disciplinary stuff mm-hmm. without um, without partiality or or yes and um, I think that's so beautiful without prejudice is probably the better way of translating it okay literally um, that you carry these things out without prejudice doing nothing according to partiality or fra- favoritism and I think that is so beautiful. It's saying, look, even if they are a brilliant person, even if they're well-respected, even if they're a leader in the church, you need to carry the, out these things without prejudice, without favoritism, because the health of the community is paramount here. Okay, mm-hmm. that's, that's what the pastoral letters are about, is, is sort of how to organize and, and run the church community. Yes, you can receive an accusation against a church leader you need to do it publicly reprove them publicly because you need to give a warning to the rest and you need to do this this is like one of the most solemn oaths in the world i charge you solemnly before god and christ jesus and the chosen angels that you need to do these things without prejudice and without partiality Mm. i'm like that is so brilliant Mm -hmm. like yeah it's not wrong to hold each other accountable in the Lord in love and kindness because it's not loving if we let stuff go. Right. If it's not loving if we let church leaders or anyone in the church hurt one another. That is the exact opposite it's, it's complicity of it. faithfulness to the church. Yes, sir. So that's um, where I want to go with that. What do you think of that? I'd actually like to save these thoughts for when we get into the come follow oh. me because they're actually, they're actually going to complement. No, it's fine. Like This is actually going to complement it really well. Um, but I will come back to this once we get to, uh, okay, then let's come back to the, come when we go to the, come follow me. All right. Thank you so much. Like, I just know that my thoughts are going to make a lot more sense in that context. Okay. And I really wanted to save a lot of those thoughts, especially with regard to all the, all that's happening this week, um, for the second half of, uh, second Nephi 26. But yo, that, I mean, this was incredible, Derek. I actually didn't know about that scripture in second Nephi or sorry. Timothy, yeah. First Timothy, Second First Timothy, Timothy, First five, Timothy yeah. five. Like I didn't know that existed there. I thought you were going to go to Galatians two uh, to actually nope. see an example of this in practice. But if you are looking for an example of that in practice, go to go to uh, Galatians, Second Galatians, or is there one Galatians? Galatians? There's Gosh, only there's Galatians only one. chapter two. Galatians chapter two, yeah. uh, <laughs> chapter uh, verses about twelve through seventeen, I believe, and we actually discussed that in more detail in our. Paul versus President Nelson episode if you want a greater treatment of that. Right. But uh, yeah. Anyway, if um, 
you have anything else to say about that before we move on to uh, the br- our brief recap of the BLDS conference? No, we can probably just move on. I've, I've taken up a lot of time already. There's a, but, but it's there's, great. We're, we, we'll, we'll probably come back to this in the future weeks as more things trickle out. Um, sure, sure. All right. So uh, just real briefly, wanted to take a moment to uh, have a recap of the third annual Black LDS Legacy Conference that happened in Washington, D.C. this past weekend. First of all, guys, we really thought we were going to be able to live stream this event, but we found out the day before, like the night before, that we wouldn't be able to stream anything because of some kind of policy or whatever. But uh, we were able to record the event. We just had to get some people to sign the waivers. We still don't we're still not entirely sure if we're going to be able to release the recordings. We are working on that much, but um, I just want to let you guys know at, at least uh, some of what you guys were missing out on because it was an incredible conference. Um, we got to hear from, I mean, we got to hear from uh, Janan Graham Russell, whose concentration is black womanist theology, which is really cool. She's a doctoral candidate up here at the Harvard Divinity School. Got to hear from uh, Jordan Harvey, Tom Reed, who works for uh, Ancestry.com and also does genealogy, a lot of genealogy stuff for the church. Got to hear from uh, Brother Ahmed Corbett. I don't know what it is he currently does exactly. I'm pretty sure it's somewhere something like general public affairs for the church. All I know is he did a lot of public affairs stuff in the past regionally, and he was also the former stake president of uh, the Cherry Hill, New Jersey stake. And we got to hear from Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Woo! Guys. Um, yeah. Oh, man. Like, they were all great keynotes and Q&A sessions. I really got to get give it up to Dr. Fatima, though, because she, she killed it, man. I really yeah, wonder yeah, if the people, the like, I really wonder if the people in that room knew what they were experiencing, what a rare moment that was. Like, a, a bona fide theologian preaching from the Book of Mormon who happens to be, you know, both a black woman and a member of the church. Like, that is, that is freaking huge. It is, and I, I'm just going to have to say, that's why we need more theologians in the church. Absolutely. Yep, i got to plug my people there. Got to plug your people yeah. there. And also, like Dr. Fatima Saleh, she was, uh, she's one of the authors of Book of Mormon for the least of these. And i got to tell you guys, especially after hearing her uh, preach at this event, if you don't have a copy of Book of Mormon for the least of these, what are you doing? Like, really, what are you doing with your lives right now? Like, that book, that resource for your study, that's basically what we're trying to do here. Um like our whole, the premise of this whole podcast is centering the marginalized in the Mormonism. The fact that Dr. Fatima Saleh has already released one volume of this resource that is designed to do just that. Like, I feel like every single one of our listeners who has an interest in reading the Book of Mormon from the margins, you really would do well to just get yourself a copy of this book. Like, I got, I got mine as soon as it dropped. I, I was able to get mine for five bucks. So I, like, brought a, bought a couple of those. Yeah. Pr- price has gone up a little bit since then, but... It's still cheaper than doing three years at Duke Divinity School. Absolutely. Which is, <laughs> absolutely. Which is what she did. Three years. It took her... And I think it took her, like, seven years to finish that degree, too. But, yeah, she got that Duke Divinity School degree, and, you know, her knowledge is in that book. So, uh... I just want to give one more plug for Book of Mormon for the least of these. You can find it on Amazon. It's a great resource and companion to your study of the Book of Mormon. They're working on Volume 2 right now. Yay. Yay. Um, That was the only thing I was mad about was when I picked up Book of Mormon for the least of these. It didn't cover the whole Book of Mormon. It only covered First Nephi to Words of Mormon. So I'm anxiously awaiting uh, that second and third volume. 
And uh, I, I just want to go over some highlights of what we experienced at these keynotes and at this conference. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Derek and I got to sit on a panel with uh, Sister Christine, Sister Kelly Elamine, and Sister uh, Mary Lovett. That was, a, that was a real treat. That was great. Hopefully, uh, we're able to get that recording. I know we all signed the waiver, so hopefully that uh, recording can get out to you guys so you can see it. But uh, I just want to briefly highlight some things in these uh, keynotes and uh, sermons that we got to hear. Now, uh, Jordan Harvey... If I didn't respect him before, I had all the respect for him after his uh, opening remarks. He made reference to the Book of Moses, to Black Panther, and to Elder Peter Johnson all in the same talk. And I thought that was just so cool. Uh, The basic recurring theme uh, of his remarks was showing people who you are. Obviously, there's a uh, divine undertone to that, but I want to talk a little bit about how he did that. He, he talked about a recurring theme throughout the movie Black Panther. Sorry if you haven't seen the movie. A, li- a few spoilers ahead. But um, he, he talked about the recurring theme of declaring who we are was always in the context of someone citing their relationship to royalty throughout the movie. There's the beginning scene in the movie where the Dora Milaje confront uh, Njobu, who is Killmonger's father. And then also again when Killmonger tells the Wakandan council to ask his identity and just before T'Challa deals the final blows to M'Baku during his challenge for the throne. In every instance, there's a declaration of their identities brought, that brought them access to power or brought them access to royalty. So the observation that Jordan makes is about that last scene. And he notes a similarity between that scene and the uh, one that plays out between Moses and the adversary in the book of Moses. So the first words out of M'Baku's mouth at the first sign of trouble for T'Challa during their challenge is, Where is your God now? And then he says, No powers, no claws, no special suit, just a boy not fit to lead. It's very similar to how Satan tries to demoralize Moses with the words, Moses, son of man, worship me. So like in that moment, um, Queen Ramona in this moment she yells at T'Challa to show them who you are at which point T'Challa regains himself he responds by declaring his identity I am Prince T'Challa son of King T'Chaka very similar to how Moses responds to uh, Satan with I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten and then he closed with the words of Elder Johnson uh, saying the Lord's words to Moses apply to you and me we are created in God's own image and he has a work for us to do The adversary attempts to deceive by having us forget who we truly are. And if we truly truly do not understand who we are, then it is difficult to recognize who we can become. And I just thought that was a really powerful message to share and just awesome that he was able to draw that parallel, gospel parallels between the book of Moses and um, Black Panther. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I just want to briefly point out that that has some implications for our transgender siblings about we need to believe them when they name who they are. Yes, sir. And there's there's power in that. And it's the adversary who wants to impose an identity on them that they don't accept. Yes, sir. And uh, the last surprise I had from this was uh, from Brother Ahmed Corbett himself. Um, I, I don't know all that much about Brother Corbett, except that when it comes to issues surrounding blackness in the church, I'm usually a, a little underwhelmed by what he has to say. I had somebody on social media ask us the other day what we thought of you know, his little, like they have these little video vignettes in the Come Follow Me student manual. They had one for the one that, for the chapter that covered skin colors and curses. And it's a video of Brother Ahmed Corbett talking about skin color and curses. I 
I mean, I understood what he was saying, but I didn't particularly think that it moved the conversation forward or really named what we needed named with regard to racism in the Book of Mormon. But I have to say that I was pleasantly surprised, and, uh, and here's why. He, he used a key principle of the Book of Mormon to talk about the power behind Dr. King's civil rights movement and, and its success. Specifically, he talked about how the principle of faith, as discussed in the Book of Mormon, powered the movement, though many of us weren't able to pr be present for it. I'll just highlight a couple of examples of this briefly. This is what Brother Corbett said, the notes I took. He said, The first and foremost precept of the Book of Mormon is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It teaches us to look forward and see his promises as if they are already fulfilled and act accordingly. So then what he did was he played this video of Dr. King, Dr. King's speech, I've been to the mountaintop and I have a dream speech. He, he played both of them. And he noticed specifically how Dr. King visualized the movement's success prior to achieving it. So here, here, here's the section of the mountaintop speech that I believe he quoted. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Again, that's the uh, mountaintop speech. So uh, then the next thing he does is quote Dr. King's speech from the I Have a Dream speech. And this is near the end of the speech again. He says, with, with this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. So what Dr. Sorry, what Ahmed Corbett pointed out, the similarities between Dr. King's statements and scriptures from the Book of Mormon, he quoted First uh, Nephi chapter 5, verse 4 through 5, and that's where Sariah complains against Lehi for sending their sons to uh, what seems to be their certain doom. So in verse uh, 4... Lehi says, I know that I am a visionary man, for if I had not seen the things of God in a vision, I should not have known the goodness of God, but had tarried at Jerusalem and had perished with my brethren. But behold, I have obtained a land of promise in the, things in the which things I do rejoice. Yea, and I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban and bring them down again unto us into the wilderness." Now, at this point in the story, Lehi's family is still somewhere in the uh, Arabian Peninsula, and it's going to be several more years until they arrive into the Promised Land. Yet, Lehi's speaking as if he had already attained this future, already obtained this Promised Land. 
So like very much in the same way that Dr. King is proclaiming that he has been to the mountaintop and has seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is the kind of faith that drove the civil rights movement. It was the kind of faith that blessed those who possessed it with the assurance of a better future. So much so that, uh, that, that, that they felt they already obtained it and they acted like it. That was the words of Brother Corbett I really liked. Mm-hmm. They acted like they had already received it. That's the kind of faith the black pioneers had who stayed even though they couldn't yet partake of the blessings of membership in the church but lived as if they did because they knew that one day they would have those blessings. It's the kind of faith that the Lord wants us to have, especially those of us on the margins. Things may look bleak for a lot of us now, but... Because of the justice of God and the mercy of Christ, we're we're gonna one day, um, we're gonna one day be vindicated, and that knowledge demands that we live and act accordingly. The faith the Lord wants us to have is the faith of the marginalized, the faith of MLK, the faith of Nephi, the faith mm-hmm. of Lehi, the kind of faith that Nephi gave his res- that gave Nephi his resilience in Second uh, Nephi twenty six. The kind of things that make him say, "God, thy ways are just." Even though Nephi has seen the destruction of his people, he has seen the blessings that are going to come to them as well because of their faithfulness. So, um, yeah, that that. I said Second Nephi twenty six, so that's a good segue. But I, I just wanted to see if you had any comments. Yeah, on that I I think that's really good. Hopefully, that people will be able to get the videos at some point and go through them. They're all really great, worth worth going through. Um, I just want to ask you, how did you feel being there? Like, did uh, being around people who look like you and who could understand you without having to explain anything to them? What did that feel like to be around saints like that? Dude, um, <laughs> um. I mean, it's a little hard to articulate beyond saying that, you know, it just feels really good. You know, I I struggle to say exactly how that feels. I will joke a little bit in saying that I remember when Black Panther came out two years ago. You know, I remember looking at the poster and just seeing all those characters that look like me. I'm just like, oh, this must be what white people feel like all the time. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I think somebody even made that joke. Like we and we saw that video. We saw that movie together at the conference uh, two years ago. But it's just so great to be able to be around people who inherently know your struggle that you don't have to explain yourself to and that just get it. That's like I I don't take it for granted that there are so many rare moments where I don't feel like I'm constantly on my guard when I am worshiping, you know, like that is a tough place to be like I don't like going to church and feeling like I have to be on guard because of the way I worship. I don't like going to church and realizing that someone else's racism is going to get in the way of both their worship and my worship. I don't worry about that at all when I go to the conference. And uh, I wish more people could feel that way. In fact, every time I go to this conference, I am just strengthened more with a resolve to make sure that people are able to experience at church what I experience at the conference. Make sure I'm able to experience what it's like to go to church and not be judged because of how I think or of how I look or how I love. You know, I want that for everybody. In fact, that conference is the reason why this podcast exists. I've said that a couple of times mm-hmm. already. But this podcast basically exists so that people can feel the same way that I feel at that conference. Unjudged and ready to worship in a way that is unfettered by all these meaningless labels, you know what I'm saying? Not to say that they don't matter, because they do. It is important to not be colorblind. It is important to not be blind to how people love and how people think, but to not be judged because of those things and not be marginalized because of those things, that is a feeling I want people to experience. That's good. So what I hear you saying is that this podcast is a way of taking that spirit 
and infusing it into the rest of the year. Correct. Yeah. And of okay. course, building a community around that. You know what I'm saying? Um, I really like how a lot of people who listen to the podcast currently have kind of mobilized themselves, started sharing the episodes in different uh, forums on social media, have started having dialogue with each other about these very subjects, are being more emboldened to say things that may be less popular in their own Sunday school mm-hmm. meetings. Some of mm-hmm. our listeners are Sunday school teachers and are doing these very things. Like, I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of these people who are listening to this podcast and who share with us their stories of success and share with us their stories of how they are able to reclaim a space for themselves and other people like them at church. That is freaking huge, man. Like, obviously, I love sitting here and talking with you about this stuff. You know, I mean, that's the basis of our friendship, basically. We get to discuss these things for fun. You know what I'm saying? But that the work that we're doing here means something to people that listen to this podcast and it means something to them in their lives and it's playing a very active part of how they worship and how they Mm -hmm. minister Mm -hmm. that is what we're trying to build a community around that's what we're trying to create and i could not be more proud of the people who listen to this podcast in our building zion where they are using these principles that we have in essence taken from this black lds legacy conference yeah that's good it's freaking great man Again, I'm really proud of a lot of our listeners. Thank you for sharing your success stories with us. And keep doing it. Like, we love hearing, you know, just the success you guys are having at church and how you're reclaiming space for yourselves or those you love who may be marginalized because of how they look or how they love or how they think. So, And I just want to add, I felt great at the conference, too. You did. Obviously, I don't have the same buy-in or the same blessings and let me just say how proud i was of you and how you handled yourself at the conference (laughs) Derek was such a g during the panel man like (laughs) he deflected like you know he had questions on the panel and he just you know deflected to black voices he was smooth at the end of it too he was like (laughs) and you know one of the most important things we can do is elevate elevate the voice voices of black people and people of color and then hand them the mic which is what i'm gonna do right now (laughs) and then he handed the mic to another panelist i was like Derek, that was that was thug life move right there i was really proud of you in that moment bro like sorry didn't mean to cut you off i i really liked how i felt there there i mean i I, it was very reassuring. It was just very um, glorious. I, I, I felt I felt great. I felt like I'm part of something. And I also felt lucky and honored to be invited. This mm. is not my space. Right. I, I'm going to name that. That's not for me. It's not by me. It's not about me. And so I, I it was a privilege to be invited there and, and to be welcomed and not just on the stage, but in, in person, people. Mm-hmm really treated me like oh you have a place here and mm-hmm. and which i don't think i've earned all of those ally cookies <laughs> and i don't want ally cookies but but they gave them to me and and basically treated me almost like i was one of of the group yeah it was really cool and again Derek conducted himself incredibly well not like Derek had to be on his best behavior <laughs> or anything like that no, no, but uh Derek to me is a great example of what allyship what of what accompliship uh, looks like so I just want to let you know Derek oh, I think thanks. you're a great I think you're a great accomplice and I'm very proud of you as an ally as an accomplice and of course as my friend like it's what I need to do is here. disturb disturb more white people yeah Derek wants to make white people cry that's what yes. he wants to do <laughs> yes like, <laughs> he wants to be like Jane Elliott and make white people cry <laughs> yes I want to be like Jane Elliott and make white people cry yeah that's when you know you've ascended the ladder when you're disrupting white solidarity by making other white people cry like you'll earn the respect of any black person in your proximity Aww. like <laughs> 
Not not to say you should go out on Sunday. Don't go to church tomorrow and try to make white people cry. Like, <laughs> at least don't do it without video evidence. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, I, I want to see that. I want to see all of it. <laughs> anyway, that's all I want to say about the uh, conference. Uh, hopefully, I, I can't give, I really want to give a recap of Dr. Fatima Saleh's words, but I think I just would not be able to do it justice. Yeah. I really want you guys to see the video, and I really want you guys to see the power mm-hmm. of you know, a black theologian preaching from the like Book of Mormon. Her ideas are powerful and her presentation was brilliant. Absolutely see, brilliant. See, I that's one thing that I wish I could do better is my presentation because I have I have thoughts that I think would be helpful, but I don't think that I can convey them with the power and the grandness that she did. Our panel had to be right after that. I was I so angry, man. <laughs> like I'm like, how are we supposed to follow that? I just wanted to say, everybody go home. Just go home. Like this is it. <laughs> But uh, anyway, we are going to go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me. Before we do that, just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LGS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So um, I want to begin by talking about 2 Nephi 26. The whole, come follow me, is 2 Nephi 26 through 30. But uh, I want to discuss, in particular, 2 Nephi, some of these ideas discussed in 2 Nephi 26, because there are some important themes to notice here. Nephi has seen the fallen destruction of his people and is clearly hurt by it, yet he displays an incredible amount of faith and hope in the resilience and resilience in the coming verses, um, after verse 7. This is something I've seen much in the black church and among the African saints. He's just an incredible example of resilience and faith in the face of a seemingly dismal future. He has seen destruction, but like Martin Luther King Jr., he's also seen the mountaintop. He's seen the Savior. He's seen his mission, and he knows that those who hearken unto the words of the prophets and destroy them not, but look forward to Christ with steadfastness for the signs which are given, notwithstanding all persecution, these shall not perish." That's the kind of faith and resilience that allowed those in the civil rights movement to persist. Again, considering all the difficulties they had endured and would yet endure, they lived as if the promised blessing in the future was already theirs. And that's something we can see early on in 2 Nephi 26, starting in about verse 7, when Nephi declares that he's seen the destruction of his people and mourns for them. Something I want to talk about also is in verse 15 through 21. Now, generally, these verses are understood to be a prophecy concerning the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, which, which it is, but that's not all there is to gain from these verses. We had the privilege of listening to this sermon from Dr. Fatima Saleh, and she made brief reference to it during her sermon, but uh, she also talks about it in Book of Mormon for the least of these, I think, and she adds what I feel to be a very important contribution to this particular prophecy in the text. <clears throat> it says, quote, The profound message of the gospel is that every individual voice matters. Ultimately, no one is silenced by death, close quote. This is super relevant in the context of MLK's last speech. In fact, he was killed the day after uh, his mountaintop speech, and his work continues to this day. And his words, his message, and his mission convict all kinds of bigots today. So, like, the very earth is... um, 
at least what I understand from these verses, 15 through 21. The very earth is going to give power to the voices of those who have been ground into the dust. This is black folks. This is LGBTQ folks. This is women. This is anybody on the margins whose voice has been silenced because of an identity they espouse. In a way, the description here of voices rising from the ground, it's really scary. Like, these voices are going to be familiar to us. We're going to remember them. Those who have pushed others into the dust of the earth, they're going to have to listen to their voices, convicting them. Any question of whose voices those are will rise from the dust is made clear in the end of verse 20. It says, The poor whose faces have been ground into the earth. And this can be poor in any manner. This can be poor as to the things of the world. This can be poor in spirit. Anybody who's been robbed of an opportunity for uh, spiritual fellowship or spiritual growth because of identities they espouse. So the profound lesson I feel that is often lost on us because of verses 15 through 21 or in verses 15 through 21 is that no voice is going to be silenced. Even if they're silenced now, we're going to have to hear them at some point and we're going to have to reckon um, with how he treated those voices. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to add there, Derek, about those voices before I move to 28? No, let's move on and, and hear what you have to say there. Thank you, Derek. So um, I just want to point out particularly verses 18 through 19 and also verses 24 through 29. These are themes we've seen before. When Nephi scolded his brothers for not asking God the meaning of Lehi's vision in First Nephi uh, chapter 16, and again, in Jacob's sermon in 2 Nephi 9, we, we see Nephi taking aim at the entitlement and the pride of people who are called out on their BS. And, uh, and like Jacob's sermon, it comes after a pronouncement of woes. Like, look at verse 19. For the kingdom of the devil must shake, and they which belong to it must needs be stirred up unto repentance, or the devil will grasp them with his everlasting chains and they be stirred up to anger and perish. Now let's read verse 28. And in fine, woe unto all those who tremble and are angry because of the truth of God, exclamation mark. For behold, he that is built upon the rock receiveth it with gladness and he that is built upon a sandy foundation trembleth lest he shall fall. Check that out real quick. Like, what are the two possible responses to being called out on bigotry, according to these verses? One is to repent, because those who want to be better and who are built upon the rock, they receive the truth with gladness, as we read in verse 28. And the other way to respond is to be stirred up to anger, and we may fall because they are built upon a sandy foundation. It seems supremely important at this point that the saints have to get comfortable with, 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 uh, with being imperfect. We, we seem to know this truth, but we don't really believe it as far too many of us like get mad, entitled and defensive anytime we say anything problematic when it comes to our marginalized brothers and sisters. Just this week, a white woman somehow had a piece. I don't know if you saw this, Derek. Did you see what the Salt Lake Tribune published? No. Dude. Wait, tell me again what it is. I don't know if I saw it. So the Salt Lake Tribune published a uh, an opinion piece by uh, this uh White woman, I don't know if she's a BYU student, but she's a convert to the church. Oh, is this the one that says we're not racist? Okay, yeah, I read that. Yes. It says that we shouldn't blame at all Brigham Young University for what happened to those five women on the BYU's black and immigrant panel that happened at BYU during Black History Month. It was just, I don't know, man. It was so poorly written. Like, y'all can find it on the Salt Lake Tribune. I don't know when it was published. If there was a time for a prayer roll, I'd talk a little bit more about it, but, you know, this, this is what we're dealing with. Just 
This woman, she somehow had a piece published in the Salt Lake Tribune responding to the racist incident at BYU, saying that it wasn't indicative of an institutional problem, even though the opposite is a statistically indisputable fact. Like, it's no coincidence that these very verses are next to, the, uh, to these following verses in a little bit of parallelism. Starting in verse 21. And others will he pacify and lull them away into carnal security, that they will say, all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth. All is well, and thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. Close quote. Verse 24 through 29 also bear uh, mentioning. Therefore, woe be unto him that is at ease in Zion, exclamation mark. Woe be unto him that crieth all is well, exclamation mark. Yea, woe be unto him that hearkeneth unto the precepts of men and denieth the power of God and the gift of the Holy Ghost, exclamation mark. Yea, woe be unto him that saith, we have received and we need no more, exclamation mark. Woe be unto him that shall say, we have received the word of God and we need no more of the word of God for we have enough. How many times have we heard folks in this church declare emphatically that because we're led by a prophet of God or that the church is prospering and that the church is rich, that what we're doing with regard to women, black folks, LGBTQ folks is probably fine. How often have we heard women and LGBTQ folks seek additional revelation concerning their position in the church only to be mocked by traditional saints claiming that all is well in Zion? How often have black folks felt alone and dispossessed in the church, even though functionally we're supposed to be the same as everyone else? And how would we explain the lack of black folk in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even though our policies no longer discriminate against them, and even though we're statistically uh, the most religious in the nation? Why would we speak against anyone seeking revelation for, for these different groups? Why would we censure those who are speaking on behalf of those groups? And why, when LGBTQ folks, women, and black folks share their pain, are we quick to defend the church for however they're treating them and, and all doing this while ignoring their voices instead of listening and petitioning for better on their behalf? Like the scriptures are saying right here that woes are to be pronounced upon all those who say all is well in Zion. And I would go as far as to say that those who think all is well in Zion or those who act like all is well in Zion by being quiet. And those folks on the margins are clearly saying otherwise, yet we don't want to hear it because we're stirred up to anger. And because of that, we we're, we're, we're like, well, according to the verses, we're going to perish. But if we're built upon the rock, we can hear these folks on the margins and receive the counsel with gladness and be a better church because of it. You, you, you spoke about this earlier, Derek, about how necessary it is to listen to these folks. And it's going to be critical in these revisions that will inevitably come to, uh, to the church handbook in the future. But I find the timing quite opportune uh, during this week of the new policies that the last half of uh, chapter 26 we're studying this week is a declaration that the gifts of God, the blessings of God, that they're available to everybody. Uh, starting in verse 24, we can see this. Wherefore, he commandeth none that they shall not partake of his salvation. He doth cry unto, behold, doth he cry unto any, saying, Depart from me? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he saith, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth. Buy milk and honey without money and without price. Behold, he commanded Hath he commanded any that they should depart out of the synagogues or out of the houses of worship? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. Hath he commanded any that they should not partake of his salvation? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he hath 
given it free for all men. And he hath commanded his people that they should persuade all men to repentance. Behold, hath the Lord commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness. Behold, I say unto you, nay, but all men are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden. Then he does something really interesting in the next verse, in verse 29. He commandeth that there should be no priestcrafts, for behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Why is that there in this context? Because he's going to go on and keep talking about the equality of the gifts and the justice of God. Why is this verse just kind of inserted here seemingly out of nowhere? Like, why are we being told about priestcrafts as Nephi is teaching us that the Lord is all about inclusivity? My theory about the placement of this particular verse is because the very idea, I, I believe it's a caution against, uh, against prejudice, among other things. It's a caution against many things, but it's a caution against prejudice because the very idea that someone is less worthy of blessings that you believe to be your birthright by virtue of, the, of uh, their skin color, sexual orientation, or gender is a way of showing or supposing supremacy over them. And that prejudice in the name of Christ meets the definition of priestcraft. The Lord is letting us know, I think, that uh, supposing to place a barrier between us and God based on our identities is one of the most damning and dangerous things that we can do. <clears throat> and he tells us multiple times in multiple ways throughout chapter 26 that all have a seat at the table and we need to get out of the way. And that's basically all I wanted to say about, you know, what we spoke about earlier with regard to the policies affecting our trans brothers and sisters. I feel like a lot of that handbook, a lot of the language in there is getting in the way of uh, Christ's blessings. And I really feel like we need to get out of the way and we need to really take this pretty much the last half of chapter 26 and parts of 28 to heart. And yeah, just get out of the way of letting our brothers and sisters receive blessings no matter what their identities are. Yeah, I think that it's connected with seeking the welfare of Zion because you can't seek the welfare of Zion if you don't if you don't support the equality of, of access for yes, all sir. God's children. Yes, sir. Right? And that's why he says priestcraft is the opposite of that because you're building up yourself. You're not building up access for all the wherefore of zion as a whole yeah i think that's that's very clearly w to me why it's why it's in there yes yeah i want to go back and talk a little bit about this um this idea of continuing revelation okay because if we go back to um the whole line upon line thing oh yes sir and this is in chapter 28 verses uh verse 30 you know, I will give unto the children of man line upon line, precept upon precept, which this comes from Isaiah, by the way. A lot of this is really just drawn very intimately uh, from Mos uh, from Isaiah. Okay. Blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. Now, this is really interesting. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. Okay, yes. And from him, from them that shall say, we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. We're talking about revelation here. Uh -huh. The moment you think you've, you don't need any more revelation, that's when the Lord is going to stop. But when you actually implement what you've got, 
you're going to get more of it. And I think this is really very clear with the 1978 revelation because, yes, we got that revelation. We have not unfolded all of it. Mm-hmm. We have not even Im- applied all of the implications of that revelation to to uh, people of African descent and to people of color in general. We just haven't done that. We haven't done the work. So why is God going to give us more revelation if we haven't even finished working on all of the direct implications of what the 1978 revelation is? Fair I mean, that's question. Kinda, that's kind of interesting. We need to work mm-hmm. harder to do those things. As yes, well. sir. Yes, sir. And it's the same thing. If we don't think we need more revelation on women or or uh, trans people or, or LGB individuals, like if we think we have enough, that's when what we do have is going to be taken away. And I think there are so many people culturally in this church who think we've got it all. Mm-hmm. There, It's kind of like that window that I said, the fundamentalist window, the one that's naive that thinks you just look out the window, you don't see your reflection at all, you have this unmediated, perfect view of what God's will is, and no one has that. No one has that. But on the other hand, the skeptics, the skeptics are wrong to say that there's no revelation at all. You're just reflecting your own thing. That's also wrong. Uh-huh. I think that's where where we get into this. Like, let's go in then in chapter 29. I love this. Oh, yeah. I love this. Um, where it says many of this is verse 3, 29 verse 3. Many of the Gentiles shall say, a Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. Now, obviously, this is very true for, for people who don't think that we can get the Book of Mormon, right? Right. Our, um, our friends in other Christian denominations may think that there can't be any more Scripture. But that's the attitude of a lot of people within our church. Ooh, okay. They're saying, listen to this. Let's talk about the proclamation on the family. A proclamation, a proclamation. We have got a proclamation, and there cannot be any more proclamation. Uh huh. Or think about, um, yeah, think about a, a policy, a policy, a policy. We have got a policy, and there cannot be any more policy. Mm. Like, or a handbook. Ooh, we've got a handbook, a handbook. We've got a handbook, and there cannot be any more handbook. Yeah. There's going to be more handbook. Yep. There's going to be more handbooks than I'm going to have dates in the next month. Oh, jeez. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why you got to do yourself like that, Derek? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's true. We're going to have, there's going to be more, like, there's going to be more handbook, right? Yeah. This is not the end of the handbook. Uh, I hate to say we shall overcome, but we, we shall. Mm-hmm. This this handbook isn't the end of the story, you know. I I, I don't want to minimize the terror and and the abuse that some people will experience based right. on this handbook. Right. But I also want to name that that's not the end of the story. Um, there will be more handbook. There will be more policy. There will be more scripture. Mm-hmm. And our stories will end up in official declaration number three. Ooh. Yes. Powerful. Like, I, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but it's going to be there. And if you don't believe me, you have the same attitude of the people saying, we've got a Bible, there can be no more Bible. Mm. That that attitude is completely condemned to, to, to smugly and arrogantly think you have it all figured out. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't claim to have it all figured out, right. but I do know that the people who most attack LGBT dignity and humanity think they've got it all figured out. They think they know exactly what gender is. Mm-hmm. They think they know exactly what the texts mean they think they know exactly what to do and it's very clear that they don't they even in the handbook it says we don't know what causes orientation we don't know what causes the transgender experience they don't they don't which is good because they they don't say 
we know it's a plot from Satan or we know it's a liberal plot or we know it's a whatever. They actually take people's experience as it is and say, look, this is real. I think the fact that that now transgender is real in the handbook, I hate to say that it's a step to progress because I don't want it to, to, to make it sound like because it's a step into some mess if you don't actually have the whole thing just. But it's there, and people of goodwill can use that. And eventually we're going to get back to um, all are alike unto God. But yes, before sir. we get there, I want to I want to go back to chapter 29, verses, uh, verse 9. And I do this, that I may prove unto many that I am the same yesterday, t- today, and forever, that I speak forth my words according to mine own pleasure. And because that I have spoken one word, ye need not suppose that I cannot speak another. For my work is not yet finished. And a lot of people think it's finished in the 1800s, right? But here's what it says. My work is not yet finished, neither shall it be until the end of man. Mm. The restoration isn't something in the past. It's something Mm -hmm. ongoing. It's It's something unfolding. It was started, but it has not been finished. We have not unfolded the dignity of LGBT people. We have Mm -hmm. not unfolded the dignity of all genders. Mm -hmm. Um, We have not, you know, there's more to be said on that. Yeah. Um, neither shall it be until the end of man, neither from that time henceforth and forever. So I'm mean, like, yes. And the whole point about God being the same yesterday and today and forever isn't that you're stuck with what God said, but God's character is always going to be one to say more. Right. That's what's the same. So you can't say, well, Adam and Eve, or you can't say, well, the proclamation on the faith and say, well, God's the same yesterday. It's never going to change. Like, there's no hope for this. I mean, like, I think it's Satan that wants to whisper in our ears that the church can't change. That that has to be what it is. Mm-hmm. Anyone who says the church can't change is denying the validity of a living God who yes, speaks sir. to us and loves us yes, sir. and created us and sent us here with a plan never to forget us. God mm-hmm. would not have sent me here, and I wouldn't have accepted. I chose to come to this planet knowing the plan of salvation, knowing that there's room for me. Mm-hmm. Other people don't know where there's room for me, but there is. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, let's go back to, um, you know, verse 26, 33. All are, yeah. Any thoughts on that, or should we go to all are alike unto God? I mean, that's, no, not on what you just said. You said it perfectly, and I think uh, 26, 33, it's a, it's a great button on both what I have said and what you have said. So let's, let's go to it. So I'm going to read verse 33 real quick. Um, so all of these, you know, um, God lists things that we're commanded not to do about how to live in community, including equality. And then verse 33 says... Sorry, real quick before you say that. Like, I like how what he says not to do is just after this verse, just a slew of other verses where he says, you know, have we denied none to come unto him and all that other stuff. Like, look at what he lists in that verse of what not to do. Like... He doesn't say anything about identity there. Like, there are sins like, no, don't murder. I don't have it open. What is he saying? Yeah, murder, lying, stealing, taking the name of the Lord God in vain, which I think when people use God's name say it. to paste over their hatred say it. with some hypocrisy, yep. they're using God's name in vain. Oof! Yep. Yeah. Truth. So That's not how God's name is supposed to be used. Do not put God's name on your hatred for me and my people. Yes, okay? sir. Yes, sir. So, yeah, I just wanted to name that in that verse, that is the stuff that keeps you from getting to God. It's not identity stuff. That is the sins. Those, 
what Derek just yeah. read, that is what God takes issue with. And all of those sins are damaging to the community. Yes. We're all about the equality and unity of the community, and that's what's being resisted here. Yes, sir. So here's what we're going on to say. Um, 33, for none of these iniquities come of, of the Lord. For he that doeth that which is good among the... For he, which is the Lord, doeth that which is good among the children of men. And he doeth nothing save it be plain unto the children of men. I want to stop there and talk about this because this is this is really radical. I don't know if anyone's ever brought this out. But when people, this is a window towards accountability. Like God loves being accountable. God loves the idea that what he's doing is plain to us. Right. What's in the handbook is not real plain, I have to say. No, it is it, not. It's it's ambiguous. For example, it's ambiguous as to whether transgender people will be able to go to relief society or priesthood or young men or women according to the gender they know themselves to be. I think that's left open or ambiguous, and then local people will have to wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. I wish it would say, yes, you can you can go to relief society if you're a trans woman. You can go to priesthood if you're a trans man. Like that is, you know who you are, and that's where you should be. Um. But but discrimination against uh, you know same with racism racism is no, is is nonsensical, like depriving people of an equal shot in life just because there's a chemical in their skin that is supposed to be there mm-hmm. makes no sense. That is not plain. Like the policy, uh, the the temple and priesthood restrictions against people of African descent, that's not plain. That makes no sense to me. Like, in fact. Afterward, you realize, oh, it actually, that doesn't fit in our theology anywhere. Right, and, right. and when you try to shoehorn it in, it distorts the rest of our beautiful. Same thing around gender and the same thing around LGBT is trying to, to, to wiggle prejudice and discrimination into our beautiful theology doesn't work. It's, it, it's, it's not native to our tradition. It's, it doesn't really work and it doesn't fit. It's not plain. Um, and w- and it's not from God if it's not plain. Right, right. Now I don't want to take this sense, this text out of context because God's going to do all sorts of stuff that people in their limitation aren't going to understand. Like some people are going to, when we do have marriage equality in the church, people are going to say, "Well, that's not plain. Like that's a weird thing." And like, but afterward, it's actually going to make more sense than this this ever than the discrimination ever made sense. Right. Okay. Anyway, so let's go back to this. And he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. And this is really just expanding on what this bold invitation that Isaiah 55 verse 1 says that, that Nephi quotes, Come to me all ye ends of the earth, buy milk and honey, buy without money and without price, which is a little bit of an oxymoron because you're buying without money. Like yeah. that image is so radical. It, it transcends even the binary of, of, of what, how eco- economics works, right? Mm. You can't buy if it's free. You, you get it free. <laughs> but there's this grand, this really grand invitation that's universal in scope. Like just come. It's free. Like is that God is so liberal with with his blessings. He wants everyone to be there. And there's some people who say no, you can't you can't have the full blessings. You can't have a temple recommend. You can't have a calling. You can't have the priesthood. You can't XYZ simply for being who you are. Mm. Right? Mhm. 
and that's that's uh, and and the similar around race. I I really think black and white, like we said last week, or my position is that a lot of these phrases we should interpret according to their their meaning, according to what it would have meant in the nineteenth century, not what it would have meant in the ancient world. And I be I may be wrong about this, right? I could be right, wrong because I took a different tack. Um, but. Uh, but that's kind of how I think is is if you have black and white here referring to social and cultural um, constructs of race, then you have a very anti-racist statement here in the Book of Mormon that black and white are alike unto God. Right. What are your thoughts on these things? Um, gosh, my thoughts are that I agree. <laughs> oh. Like, I've already said a lot of what I had to say about these particular verses I'm just going to end it there, I guess. Well, then let me, I know we're running out of time, but just let me say one other thing. Yes, sir. Someone said, as a criticism of us online, said that people like us assume that all are alike unto God, obviously. Like, he says that progressives just assume that, that LGBT dignity and humanity is fully obvious. And I'm like, of course it's obvious. Yeah, like, what like, is... Duh. And duh. What, what's and, the problem? And they say, and... and and I think here's the the thing is if you set it up that I have to argue for rather than presuppose LGBT equality, you are already setting us You're up for all, failure. Right. Right. Like, you are making you are giving us a burden that you do not put on to straight people or cisgender right. people. Like, don't make us argue our humanity. Like, what is that? We like, should start out presupposing. Yes. It is not up for debate. And so I am not I am not all ashamed of of starting out saying, look. I know I'm a full human and I deserve to have all of the opportunities that straight people do. That should not be controversial. And somehow it, I need to do some extra work to even start there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that makes no sense. Like we would never ask straight people to do what queer people in the church do. Mm -hmm. The church would ground, would grind to a halt with all of these letters to the, to their, to the stake presidents and bishops. If we told straight people, what we tell queer people, right? It's, we wouldn't it, allow it. It, it. No, you would, you would, you would have all that backlash, and and like when we have backlash, like we're considered unfaithful when we're actually most faithful to the principles of ongoing revelation mm -hmm. in this church. Most mm -hmm. faithful to the principles of all are alike unto God, that God mm -hmm. loves all God's children. I yep. mean, like we're the faithful ones here, right? We're just saying we're holding the church accountable mm -hmm. to what we say we are. Yes, sir. And that's that's kind of where I, I don't get into this idea of like, oh, why do you progressives treat it as obvious that 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 queer people have full dignity and humanity being like, I'm here. <laughs> I just told you <laughs> I wouldn't lie about it. Like if I were a subhuman person that wasn't fully human, I would tell you mm -hmm. like I would because I'm an honest guy. I would admit it. But I am not. I am fully human. And I as a as a child of God have and should have all the same opportunities that everyone else has the opportunities for to love to build a family to build a life in the church that is my starting place equality is not my goal it's my starting place mm. so that's all i want to say on that cool and that's a good place for us to uh, end our discussion of this week's come follow me uh, before we wrap up just want to let you guys know oh there's actually something. There's actually something new that Dialogue wanted us to put out. Ooh! There. So, a uh, Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer 
two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek Knox, where can people find us? On beyondtheblockpodcast.com. And uh, what's And also our... on uh, Instagram and tw- we're on Twitter, right? We are on Twitter, we're yes. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I also want to let people know that if, if you or a loved one have been transformed by our podcast and uh, you're given more hope and more empowerment by us, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Leave leave a review of us. Oh, my gosh. And let me just say, like, um, really appreciate those of you guys who have take, taken time to leave us reviews. Like, we've actually, it looks like we're in the top 10 for Mormon pod- podcasts now, which is pretty what? freaking cool. Like, top 10? Top 10, based on reviews anyway. Oh, <laughs> I thought you meant top 10 in listeners, but okay. Not in listeners, no. But top 10. But just like, it's more of like a trending thing. Who's okay. getting the most high ratings? Who's getting okay. like, who's popping right now, basically. Ooh. So Beyond the Block is popping because of you guys. So keep spreading the word. And uh, if you haven't left us a review yet, please do so. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. It really helps the podcast and it really obviously gets the word out, which is something I just like. want to say, if there's anyone listening that doesn't like us and, and thinks we're awful, well... <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you, um, we still love you, and we're going to be here when your faith falls apart and you oh, need us. Petty, Derek. We're going to be here for you. <laughs> right, right. Because whatever fragility in your faith cannot withstand a realistic and honest look at the stuff, it's, it, maybe, not, maybe it won't fall apart about the LGBTs, but it'll fall apart because you hear about the seer stone or polygamy or something else. If you, if you don't have a resilient and grounded faith, that can endure a little bit of, of challenge. If your faith isn't elastic, if your if your approach to revelation in the church is not elastic enough to accommodate the the next thing it's going to do to you, well, we're going to be here for you <laughs> when, when your faith falls apart, uh-huh. and we're going to love you, and we're going to say welcome back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so petty, Derek. I love it. No, it's it's like it's like the father in the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. He didn't uh-huh. even mention what the prodigal son did. He was just so happy to have him have the son back. I'm like, we'll be here for you, okay? And I'm here for this. Yes, Derek. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Is uh, there anything else we need to let the folks know before we sign off? Nope, that's it. All right, then we will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs>